welcome on this uh, Veterans Day weekend and this Veterans Day holiday today. I was thinking as I was reading a little bit about Veterans Day, uh, my grandfather, my mother's father, his name was John Homer Smith. Uh, He was born in 1895, and he was drafted in 1917 into the United States Army. And 100 years ago today, he was in Siberia. He was with the 27th Infantry and a very little-known endeavor that Woodrow Wilson uh, put together. And so there were a number of uh, U.S. troops that had sailed out of the Philippines up to Vladivostok, and then they marched 1,000 miles inland, and they spent the winter of 1918 and 1919. Even though the war in Europe had ended, uh, they remained in Siberia. And, of course, the Bolshevik res- uh, Revolution was go- had gone on, and uh, they suffered greatly. They about froze to death with temperatures in 60 below uh, weather. And uh, then to add insult to injury, on the way back uh, on the troop ship, they almost starved to death because our government failed to provide food for the troops. And my grandfather, all he said about it was when they arrived in Hawaii, they got sick from eating pineapple. Uh, they had so wanted a pineapple when they were in Siberia. When I was young, I did not know much about that, if anything at all, because he was the man who taught me fishing and hunting and uh, shooting and all uh, the outdoor sports. He was quite a hunter and a fisherman. And, but I do remember his one word of advice. I used to go with him on uh, Saturdays in his car. We would take the trash to the dump, and uh, we'd go up to the dump in North Denver, and he'd say, Gary, you want to get a job at the dump? 80 cents an hour and all you can eat. And so... <laughs> You know, and uh, that was just his humor. And I believed him at the time. And, uh, but uh, he was serving, and so we do appreciate the veterans. But uh, I did not realize that it wasn't until 1954 that Veterans Day was officially uh, inaugurated as a national holiday by, uh, by then President Eisenhower. And you may not know of a man named Raymond Meeks. Raymond Meeks was a World War II veteran. And in 1945, 46, somewhere in there, he decided that uh, we should really honor all veterans of of the United States uh, because Armistice Day, uh, celebrating uh, the end or the armistice that was signed in France in 1918, uh, Armistice Day was to remember and memorialize those who lost their lives in that great conflict. In fact, I've read that World War I was the most terrible war in human history up to that point. And uh, I was surprised. I looked at the casualty figures, and Great Britain lost almost a million men, and possibly women in that. Uh, United States, some 200,000 people died in World War I, and the civilian casualties, of course, were tremendous. But uh, Raymond Meeks decided that we should honor all veterans, and so our Veterans Day coincides uh, with Armistice Day in France and Remembrance Day in Great Britain and the Allied Forces. Each country has a little different way of remembering Veterans Day, but we certainly do remember and honor and appreciate our veterans, those of you who have served, and then again those who are serving at the present time around the world in very difficult places. But Raymond Weeks, uh, he's the one who approached uh, Uh, then-President Eisenhower in the early 50s, proposing that it be changed to Veterans Day and that it's a time to honor all veterans, not just those who died in World War I. And, of course, uh, the world conflicts keep going on and on and on, don't they? And the 20th century has been described as the bloodiest century in recorded history. 
uh, and the massive uh, destruction that wars have played. But I was thinking about my grandfather and, of course, his generation who lived through two world wars, and, then the, and uh, he lived up until the beginning of the Vietnam War, the conflict there. And uh, it seemed like every five or ten years there was some major conflict going on around the world. And, of course, we are in a similar position historically. It seems like there is conflicts all around us. Uh, it can get quite, quite discouraging as we look at the national scene as well as the global scene and think about the difficulties and uh, the conflict, the struggle, the horror of what goes on around us. I was reading about uh, the British forces at Dunkirk. Remember uh, the British forces in 1940, before the U.S. Ended the war, entered the war, uh, were trapped by the German armies at Dunkirk, the beaches of Dunkirk. And it looked hopeless at one point before the evacuation came. Of course, you know the rest of the story where the British send over all sorts of boats and ships uh, to rescue their 300,000 British troops that were trapped on the shores of Dunkirk. Uh, but before that uh, ex evacuation at one point, when everything looked utterly hopeless, uh, a British officer sent this message out to his troops. And we don't know who the British officer was, but I thought it was a great message. Three powerful words. Quote, but if not, unquote. But if not, where did he get that and what does it mean <laughs> At the time, it was a strong message of courage and ultimate hope in the midst of trouble. It uh, was a message that conveyed hope. Where did he get those three words, but if not? Well, they came out of the King James Version of the Bible. And if you go back to Daniel, you will find those three words, the book of Daniel. Remember his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? And uh, they faced the fiery furnace in Daniel chapter 3, and they refused to go down in defeat. They refused to be discouraged, even though they were threatened. They declared their trust in God, even if their mission failed and their lives were consumed in that furnace. In uh, Daniel 3, verses 17 through 18, they said, If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. But if not... Be it known unto you, O king, that we will not serve any gods nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. But if not, but if not, words from God that speak to our hearts today. We just got done with another contentious election, which I guess is still being counted in some places. And we look at our political scene, but then we look at uh, the global scene and it seems like we need a good word of encouragement today. And we go to the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 11. But if not, God still speaks to our hearts today, doesn't he? Words of hope and courage when things seem dark and perhaps hopeless and discouragement can reign if we allow it to. And for some, these are words to die for. But if not... Every one of us will have our share of disappointments and discouragement and adversity in life. However, our approach in facing all of those things will distinguish us in a world that really needs the Lord Jesus Christ. The dictionary defines discouragement as follows. A feeling of despair in the face of obstacles or a state of distraught and loss over and a, a loss of sense of enthusiasm, a loss of drive and courage. In Psalm chapter 11 that Kevin read for us, uh, Psalms 11, we find, like he mentioned, it is a psalm of David. And it was for the choir director, 
remember the Psalms were Hebrew poetry and they were given to us. Uh, we don't have the music that goes with them, but uh, the Psalms were probably sung to a musical uh, tune as uh, the people would gather in different ways, but a Psalm of David. And we don't know historically when this occurred. Some conjecture that it was while he was fleeing from Saul, from King Saul, and others uh, suppose that it's when his son Absalom rebelled against King David. We don't know for sure. All we know is that David was in dire straits and he was being advised to flee. He was being advised to let his heart fear his circumstances. And in our current life, in our current days, and in many things that go on around us with the 24-7 news cycle, we recognize that there are lots of opportunities to be discouraged, to feel like we are backed into a corner, and to be dismayed at what goes on around us. Whatever David's crisis was, this psalm teaches us that we must choose between walking by our sight or walking by our trust. It is either what I see around me and my circumstances, or it is the faith that God teaches us through his word, through the power of the Spirit. We have the choice to listen to human counsel and obeying the, or, or obeying the wisdom that comes from God's word and from the Lord. James tells us that in chapter 1, verse 5. Well, my purpose today is that uh, in times that we find ourselves perhaps fearing, perhaps struggling, whether it be with uh, our current political situation, our national situation, the global scene, or perhaps something more personal in your own life, whatever you're facing, whether it's the financial issues, health issues, relational issues, all of those things, uh, they form this thing we called life. And uh, so whatever it is that uh, we need to listen to the voice of God, his immensity and his greatness, his holiness, his perfection, and understand what God has for us here today. Uh, in this psalm, David was being probably logically counseled, logically told that he needed to flee. He needed, in the face of this amazing obstacle, he needed to flee. He needed to run in fear. And when we take counsel of our fears, uh, discouragement sets in while faith flees. And David begins this psalm with one sentence, In the Lord I take refuge. Other versions translated as in the Lord I have faith or I have trust in the Lord. So he sets the tone for the rest of this psalm. And it is the fact that we have a refuge, a place that we will never be harmed in, in the Lord Jesus Christ for the New Testament believer. And so we come to this. Derek Kidner, who I've mentioned before, has a, a two-volume commentary on the Psalms, and he is one of the unusual writers and, and commentators who is very brief in his comments, but yet very powerful. And here's what he says about Psalm 11. Derek Kidner, and I'm quoting him. This is a Psalm that comes straight from a crisis. It opens with a spiritual retort to some demoralizing advice and goes on to show what is the real scare and patterns of events and what is more to be prized than safety, unquote. Uh, this psalm breaks naturally into two parts. That's why we have a two-part outline for you today. Two parts. The first three verses dis describe David's predicament, and the last four verses his deep faith in God despite his circumstances, despite what was going on nationally around him. Uh, perhaps the best-known verse is verse 3, 
where it says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? It is one of probably the uh, top 20 verses in all of Scripture that has been pulled out of context uh, to its detriment time and time again and used in an, and applied in a wrong manner. Uh, it's that question. Many preachers have taken that text and used it to show that when the foundations are destroyed, there is nothing that the righteous can do and that we are left in a hopeless situation. But that's not what David's point is here, and that's not what he was saying in this psalm. When the foundations are destroyed, there are many things the righteous can do, but above everything else, they must get a right view of God. When it looks like the foundations, whether it's the moral uh, foundations of our country or our society or uh, a number of other things, politically, uh, morally, all of those things, there is much that we can do, but it starts with David's first word in verse 1, first sentence, in the Lord I take refuge. And so it's a place of faith. As we look at these first three verses, it describes David's predicament, if you will. We need to consider the commitment we must make in uncertain times. There's a decision to be made. There's this willful decision that we make that I'm going to trust God and not fear my circumstances or situations. So our resolve, uh, excuse me, our resolve when fear is our advisor, uh, when fear tells you to flee, when fear tells you to do certain things for self-protective reasons, we need to have some resolve. We will not flee. Verse 1, look at verse 1 again. I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? Now, David, we're only hearing one side of a telephone conversation There are those in the background on the other end of the line telling David, it is time to get out of here. It is time to flee. Uh, That is one possibility that his advisor saying, whether it was under Saul or under Absalom or other situation. David had a lot of adversity in his life as you read through the Old Testament. Uh, But uh, uh, David was being encouraged or counseled to flee. And first thing we get out of this is we will not Flee. It's a reaction of expediency is to run away. Uh, in the Lord, I take refuge. And that's a perfect verb there. It's a verbal form in the Hebrew, which means that it's a completed action with ongoing results. It's a completed action when we find our trust, when we find our refuge and decide that God is our refuge no matter what. That's where we find our trust. It has ongoing results. Uh, It is not wrong to flee persecution, by the way, because you are probably thinking about sometimes in the New Testament, Matthew 10, for instance, Jesus told his disciples, when they persecute you in one town, escape to another, Matthew 10, 23. You know, there are brave Christians across the world who are facing persecution and martyrdom. When we think of those in the Middle East who face beheading because of their belief, It is not wrong to flee. There are times we need to flee. But sometimes you can't escape, and sometimes the Lord calls you to stand and face whatever course he chooses for you. God's people are not required to prove their faith by staying in one place when they could save their lives by fleeing to the countryside. In fact, by the second century, many Christians in Egypt especially, they're now known as Coptic Christians, Uh, thought martyrdom was such a badge of courage that they willingly sought out martyrdom until one of the bishops told them, quit doing that. Uh, It's not time to do that. David hid from Saul. He fled from Saul for many years. In fact, 
Well, we read our Bibles and time is compressed, but David was in flight from Saul for 14 years. Can you imagine that? And he knew that God had put the kingship on him that was going to be uh, fulfilled by God's care. But David hid from Saul for those years until it was time for him to become king. Sometimes there is a time to stand. There is that time. We must not flee. Sometimes you have to stand for what you believe in. So we will not flee. Secondly, in verse 2, we will not fear. Look at verse 2. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string and shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. This literally could be fearing for his life from an archer's bow, shooting from the shadows at night, ambushing him. Uh, Or it also could mean that simply the words of people who were shooting arrows at him and destroying his reputation the reality, though, is there is personal danger. We will not fear the bows and arrows that are coming. Uh, meta- metaphors, perhaps, for deceptive and destructive words, as we see it elsewhere in Proverbs and Psalms. But we will not flee. We will not fear. Thirdly, we will not faint in verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Remember, these are the words of his advisors in uh, 2 and 3 in the last part of verse 1. Uh, They're advising him to flee, to fear, and to faint. And uh, David says at the beginning, And Lord, I take refuge. He is the one. And when a nation is compromised, whatever that means, the response of faith is to take refuge in the Lord God Almighty. Uh, This psalm begins with David's repudiation of the temptation to flee from danger. And David actually seems a bit... Uh, uh, marveling at this suggestion because it it was against his faith in God himself. The faint-hearted advised David to flee like a bird up to the mountains where he would be safe, but instead he flew to the Lord for safety. And so our resolve, when fear is our advisor, uh, we must remember where our, our place of ultimate safety rests. And it is found in the Lord. And David gives us the reason that it is true. In verses 4 through 7, he answers whoever is telling him to flee, to faint, to fear. Uh, When he talks about the foundations crumbling, David says, oh, no, they're not. In 4 through 7, the resource is when our faith is the answer. That is our resource. The Lord reigns in verse 4a. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. The Lord reigns from his temple in heaven. The Lord reigns. The Lord's city has foundations. In Hebrews 10 or 11, it tells us, for he was looking for a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Uh, And the Lord is in his residence. He is not in flight. He is not surprised by these things. This is David's way of saying that God is everywhere. He's on the earth. He's in his holy temple, but his throne is in heaven. It doesn't always look that way. I recognize that. All of us look at the world situation through very finite eyes, and uh, we recognize that everything sometimes seems out of control. But when you read the headlines, it can seem like the whole world is spinning off of its axis, and uh, the corruption and the decay and the moral decay that we face, it seems like God is not on his throne. God is not everywhere present. But at this point, we see the fundamental difference between someone who believes in God and someone who does not. Uh, We believe that God is enthroned over all the universe, a God who is absolutely sovereign, and a God who is always far above our ways. The whole human race someday will give account to this God. 
So we ask these questions. Was God shocked by decisions that were made politically? No, he wasn't. Was God traumatized by mass shootings that have occurred in our country? Was God caught by surprise by the last midterm elections? No. The answer is a resounding no to all those questions. God is never surprised, never asleep, never startled by evil, never shocked by natural disasters, and never astonished by any Supreme Court decisions. And you need to keep that in mind, that God is the God of all things. S. Lewis Johnson, who is a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary for many years, and he, he taught there, and he said the hardest verse in the Bible to understand, the hardest verse in the Bible to understand is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He said it's the hardest verse in the Bible to believe. He goes on to say, if you can believe that, S. Lewis Johnson said, you won't have any trouble with the rest of the Bible. For a long time, the truth of that statement did elude me, and I couldn't get it because I never really thought about Genesis 1-1 in the larger context. But it is hugely important that the Bible begins with a declaration, not an argument. Have you ever thought about that? It simply declares, it is not building an argument that God exists. The Bible simply declares that God is and he created all things. Years ago, when I was at a conference in Chicago, E.V. Hill, who was a pastor from Los Angeles, spoke. He's since gone to heaven, but he was a powerful, powerful preacher. In fact, he's the only preacher I've ever heard sing a sermon. If you can imagine, he sang a sermon, and it was great. Be thankful that I don't try that. But, but E.V. Hill, <clears throat> preaching in his unforgettable style, he preached for 40 minutes on two words. The two words are, God is. God is. He said it over and over again. He whispered it. He shouted it. He illustrated it. He declared it, proclaimed it, and dared anyone to deny it. You wouldn't think you could preach that long on just two words, but E.V. Hill did. And when you think about it, you could preach longer than he did because it is such a profound statement that God is. Once you get it settled in your heart that God is, a lot of other problems will be solved as well. So God is on his throne. God, the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, they reign. God the Father reigns on his throne. Remember Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah had the vision. A magnificent passage uh, begins in that passage with the words, In the year that King Uzziah died. In the year that King Uzziah died. The whole country was a mess because their king had died. That note is important because Uzziah was one of the best kings that Judah ever had. If you go back and read the context, uh, the nation was plunged in the turmoil when Uzziah died. If you go back to history, the golden age of, Is of, Is of uh, Israel's history was drawing to a close. And uh, the question remained, would people continue to walk with God or would they return to idolatry? In that fateful moment, Isaiah came face to face with the living God and he says it this way. This comes from Isaiah 6. I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple, Isaiah 6.1. I remember the angelic beings soaring around, crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God is. Where was God? He was not wringing his hands and pacing at Judah's future with Uzziah dead. He wasn't worried about, Who am I going to get to replace Uzziah? 
Not at all. At that critical moment, God is where he's always been. He's enthroned over all things. No matter what it looks like on earth, God is. Not only does our God reign, but in verses, the second part of verse 4 through verse 6, the Lord rules. Look at the second part of verse 4. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. That sounds kind of strange, doesn't it? Well, this is uh, what's called a figure of speech, an anthropomorphism where we apply, the writer applies human characteristics to God. Now, God doesn't have eyelids because he is spirit. He is totally spirit. Uh, But the Lord examines everything closely. This is a poetic device that tells us that God evaluates every person. Isn't that amazing? What are there, six billion people on earth today? And God evaluates everyone. That amazes me, especially uh, when I go to a larger city and if you're on a crowded sidewalk and you don't know anybody and there's just thousands and millions of people going this way and that. And God knows each human heart. And you are not left out. God evaluates. And it tells us here that the Lord rules. He's taking the initiative. Here it says he tests. It is the precise omniscience of God. The eyelid part of this is the fact that when you're looking closely at something, you know, we we kind of squint and we pull down our eyelids so we can see better and get everything in focus when we're looking at a very detailed thing, don't we? And that's the picture here. He examines closely. He, his seeming immobility is not inertia. God is active and living, the Almighty God. God will ex- execute devastating judgment. And here's the bad news. When he's testing the sons of men, verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares, fire and brimstone. Burning wind will be the portion of their cup. The psalmist looks at the sudden, swift judgment of the wicked. Now, we don't think so because we look around, a lot of seeming wicked people flourish. If we were going to go to Psalm 73, we would see the psalmist there, Asaph. He struggled with that very question. Why do the wicked seem to flourish and be blessed and the righteous don't? And uh, God has an answer for Asaph just here. And this is the idea that the wicked will be judged. We should be thankful that God is merciful. He is patient. He is gracious, and he desires all men to come to the knowledge of saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here is the picture, perhaps, from Sodom and Gomorrah of burning sulfur and uh, fiery coals and all of these things pouring down upon the wicked. And, of course, if we go to the book of Revelation, we see the God out pouring out his wrath upon an unbelieving world. A scorching judgment is their destiny. Our God reigns, our God rules, and in verse 7, Our Lord will rescue. Our Lord will rescue. The Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. The righteous have nothing to fear. And you know what? You may not feel very righteous this morning. There are days we don't feel very righteous. We don't act righteously. That's because we need a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the righteousness that we have is imputed to us from Jesus Christ. All of our good works are like filthy rags, the Bible declares. And because of Jesus Christ, God the Father sees us through that lens of what Jesus Christ has done. He's our advocate. He's our intercessor. He died on the cross for us. He took our just punishment upon himself, the sins of the whole world, but he just didn't remain in a tomb. He rose again, gaining the victory over sin and death. 
And because of that, we have a future and a hope, and we are called righteous because that's what a saint is. Remember from our study of Ephesians, he addresses us as saints, set apart ones for the glory of God, and he will reveal himself to those of us who are upright in Jesus Christ, and it's our real place of worship. We will behold his face. The idea we will be in his presence G. Campbell Morgan said, This psalm is the answer of faith to the advice of fear. Both are alike conscious of immediate peril. Fear sees only the things that are near. Faith takes the larger distances. If the things fear sees are indeed all, its advice is excellent. Then the things which faith sees are realized is determined, is vindicated. Perhaps out of all of the psalms, None reveals more perfectly the strenuous hold of faith in the midst of difficulty and evil. It is the person who measures things by the circumstances of the hour who is filled with fear and counsels and practices flight. The man who sees Jehovah enthroned and governing has no panic, unquote. So in times of danger, discouragement, adversity, whether it's just looking at the news or perhaps personally feeling those things. When we are advised to flee, we walk by faith with the knowledge of the immensity of God himself. How should we then live? Uh, One writer said, I go back to three basic words. We need tenaciousness, uh, winsomeness, and courage. Tenaciousness means we don't give up. Winsomeness means we face life with a smile, not a scowl. Tenacity means we keep on keeping on, and we don't quit because we know who God is. And there's a prayer for all of us here. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would grant each one of us a tenacious winsomeness in our courage as we go through this day and the days that you give us. Lord, when we are tempted to give up, help us to keep going. Grant us a cheerful spirit when things don't go our way or what we consider to be our way. And give us the courage to do whatever needs to be done. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are with us. And thank you that you have provided a future and a hope for us. Lord, it is by grace we are saved through faith. And thank you, Lord, for today and this day of life. In Jesus' powerful name I pray. Amen. Amen. Won't everybody please stand for our last song together this morning?